When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe. And then you'll never miss a video. In Cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. But thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you this is the Final Word Storytime with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, our history show that's usually on the weekends, but today it's a, another day because it's the middle of a cricketing summer and everything is topsy-turvy, everything's been upside down. We're finally back in the Storytime saddle. Adam, I can see at the other end of the screen in winter in London is rugged up in a blanket. I'm sitting outside on a, a stinking hot, Melbourne summer night. It's the last day of January. It's pushing up past 11pm and it's sweaty and it's hot and uh, and we are we are polar opposites once again. Hello, Adam. Hello, Jeff. Yes. Uh, what's it in, in Groundhog Day? Punks Tony Phil uh, at the end of winter. It's not the end of winter in London, I assure you. It's going to be cold for some time yet. And this was the blanket that I was hibernating under last week when I had COVID, which didn't last too long, really. I, I was testing negative within... I don't know, a few days of my positive test, but I had, I suppose, some symptoms before um, beforehand. So I was able to still escape over the course of a, a fairly eventful weekend, more for you than me, uh, being at Canberra for that thrilling test match. I can't wait till we get a chance to, to go into that in some depth on the weekly show. So that's why we're out of sequence a little bit. We, we had the... Uh, the daily shows with you and Izzy, which were fabulous. Uh, and we're doing this today, which will go out on Tuesday. Then we'll have the weekly show going up on Wednesday. 
and another story time going up on sort of Friday, Saturday. So a pretty busy week of final word stuff to, to account for the fact that we're a little bit behind on story time, but this is going to be a bumper show with some cracking stories along the way. We have uh, yep, a fresh slab of new numbers before we get into the revisits, probably at the end of the week. We're, we're working that out on the run. Just a couple of things to note off the top uh, the ICC getting into cryptocurrency um, isn't that isn't that great? I saw a, um, I saw some very lavish ad with Matt Damon narrating it for a crypto website. I mean that's a real fall from grace, isn't it? The, the um, you know the Goodwill hunting. How do you like them apples? That career turning into flogging like dodgy crypto bullshit online but the ICC are getting they're hooking into it as well did, did the ICC get Matt Damon involved or was this an independent NFT thing he's got going on oh this this was some other dodgy crypto website right that's that you know it's it's like Samuel L. Jackson doing the betting ads it's those things where you go oh really yeah come on man yeah yeah no they, they called them cryptos I think I saw um it's to do with the 2015 <laughs> and 2019 men's world cup which of course why are there no women cryptos I, I ask or another number of people were asking at the time when this went up the other day, but it doesn't look great, does it? I mean, I don't know a lot about cryptocurrency. I don't profess to know a lot about NFTs either, but I don't think it, it looks great that they seem to be going headfirst into this thing. I don't know. Time will tell, I suppose. But it was another one of those dreadful press releases too when this went up a couple of weeks ago, which we've been uh, going into at different points. So they've got their official crypto partner and, and all the rest of it. I suppose it's, uh, <laughs> in my case, thinking of this selfishly, I've mentioned a couple of times last year that that photo I took at the Oval, if someone wants to NFT that and make me some money, I mean, what do they say? It's only a rort if you're not in on it. So if I can get in on the rort, then I'm all ears. But until such time, we'll be keeping a a pretty close eye on what this crypto thing uh, may mean and and may not mean. But yes, it has that, that has, has a bit of a stench to it. All I can think with that name is is Tarzos. Um, I don't know if you remember them, but they, I think they came Do in I? chip packets in in the nineties. Of course, were like they were, were they the Australian version of Pogs? I don't know. You, you would Elf you would flip for them, wouldn't you? you? Wouldn't you? Um, I, I feel like there was a way not a million miles away from with footy cards. You'd flick footy cards to, to you know. I right. would I would flick my Mick McGowan to, to get your Anthony Condon type thing. Um, There was two ways you could flick footy cards. It was either a distance competition, which, you know, which which is, as it says in the tin, and the other way was standing about, I suppose, two or three metres away from a brick wall and you would flick it against the wall and the person whose card stayed closest to that wall uh, would win the other person's card. So it was, I guess it was like marble season, footy card season. I reckon Tarzos were around there. There was a way of... I don't remember precisely how, but you would flip for them. You would flip for other people's mm. as they came out of the pack of Sandboys or something like that. Maybe you had to spin them or stand them up or something. Yeah, but yeah you can yeah. just imagine all the kids in the schoolyard in 2022 saying, oh, I've got my Sachin Tendulkar's uppercut off show of Akhtar in 2003, Tarzo, <laughs> and, and I'm going to flip that off for your... <laughs> Your Sanjay Mantraka's catch, Tarzo. I mean, yeah, yeah, good stuff from the ICC. Um, In more cheerful news, Adam, we played the final word 
11, the debut Australian match. And I'm pleased to say that the final word 11 is unbeaten across continents. Two from two after you triumphed over the Oval Dream Boys in the UK. In the English summer, we've got a win on the board in the Australian summer against the mighty Newtown Browns, who've been doing the business for about 30 years as a, a social uh, sort of social occasion side who managed to get hold of a, a turf wicket once a year um, on a public holiday when the normal clubs aren't using it. Yeah, I was super jealous of you for having had that wonderful ground to play at, as you were describing on the uh, on the weekly show before you played the game. You'd never played on a turf wicket, and what a wicket to play on. It looked stunning, beautiful setting, uh, some great final word names there from the Discord channel and other parts of our life. Uh, as you said, Dono taking a new ball, uh, looking a treat, Glenn Finkeld, uh, Nick, who's been helpful with other work we've done in the past, Marky, who I was talking to uh, in the DMs this week as well. So, I mean, well played to everyone for getting out there and let's hope it can be an annual event. I'm, I'm in the early stages of working out what my year looks like in England, but believe me when I say the final word will play the Dream Boys again. We just need to find a date in the venue. But yeah, if we can have two or three games a year, um, one in Australia, one in England and, and one somewhere else, uh, there's some talk about a big final word contingent going out to Holland for those three one days between England and the Netherlands in June. I doubt we'll have time to play a game, but you can kind of see what I'm saying. We, we, there are, there yeah. are wait, we, we've got people who are willing to travel and, and want to play cricket. And, and yeah, I want to play more as well. Well, to give you the wrap-up of the game for, for those... 30-second summary. 30-second summary, please. 30-second <laughs> summary. My first game as skipper won the toss and batted because why not? Runs on the board, get pressure. Uh, tough going on a, on that turf week, a very big ground, hard to score quickly, made 137. Didn't think that would be enough, but we defended like demons. An all-round bowling performance, 10 players bowled. Everybody had a go. Everybody did it. Came down to the last over. They needed eight off the last two overs. Should have won it. Had a retiree coming back in, but a beautiful, nerveless bowling performance at the death from Nickamick. Uh, took a, a wicket or two and saw them off after Glenn Finkel bowled the second last over and conceded one run. Oh. Um, just outstanding stuff. And so it, it was... It, I mean, they, they, they should have won that game. They, they had it. We thought, all right, this is gone. This is fine. And then, and then clawed back. Um, if I, I'll, I'll, uh, Let's say the 30 seconds ended a little while ago. But, um, well, can I ask some questions say, then? I, I want to ask some questions and get yeah. in on this point. I've kind of avoided the OBO that was running on the Discord page because I didn't want to learn too many of the details before we spoke. But Glenn Finkeld against a retiree sent down an over worth one, the second last over of the game when they needed eight to win. I mean, that's that's miracle stuff. So Glenn, at, at this point, uh, we had the number 11 in who we thought, you know, we'd probably prefer to not get him out. But Glenn mm. couldn't help himself. Killer instincts. Knocked his off stump out. Second ball of the over. <laughs> so then had four balls to go against the retiree coming back. But ah. managed to, to keep keep it to one run from those four deliveries. Outside the off stump. Couldn't lay bat on him. The uh, the wily old stager. So he sent down four overs in the game. Um, John O'Halen bowled some beautiful left arm spin. Uh, his stepson Louis was opening the batting with Raman, the two young guns. So they yep. both retired and gave us a base. And then everybody else... Scrapped away through the middle. Mike Heitner, the sports editor at The Guardian, came out of retirement, hadn't played in about 10 years, got his bowling mojo back, bowled beautifully. Uh, Mike Wood, the rugby league writer, who also follows our show, he was bowling like Jasper Boomer. He had the full right arm <laughs> out load up and also hadn't bowled in a few years but was just pinging in Yorkers at the toes. Uh, Paul Batfay hadn't played in about 15 years but he ended up bowling a beautiful spell of tidy mediums with the, the cap on backwards um, and all the rest. Nice. Uh, and then and then Marky, I mean, Marky bowled 
gorgeous leg spin. He came floating up to the crease, beautiful run up, this trailing uh, bowling arm coming over. And after he bowled the first ball, the guy batting just sort of whispered almost in awe. He went, oh, it's Abdul Qadir. And it really was. I mean, the action was... <laughs> that's, that's the first thing I thought when I saw the action as well from short mid-wicket, and, and, and that was borne out. Um, so, yeah, and then Nick and Mick bowling the last over when they needed... Um, I think they needed about seven off the eight off the last over, whatever it was, and it came down to them needing six off the last ball to tie and a big slog down the ground that for a second looked like it might go, but it, it landed short and got the ball back in for the run out when they were trying to run about seven, doing that sort of European cricket league thing where one guy, where they both end up at one end before one leaves so that you can't run yes, them out. Yes, yes. But we managed to foil that plan with uh, with Nick nerveless as the ball came in and collecting the stumps. So, you know, a, a last over thriller. I think the final word got up by about four runs maybe um, after that one run result for you in England. Yeah, not only two wins, but two, as you say, nerveless performances with the ball defending modest totals on both occasions. That's great stuff. I mean, often that's what you want in a social game for, for it to end in the last over and we've nailed it twice. So good start to the final word cricket club career. I like this. They also sort of came up with a, a nickname because TFW, so the, um, the, the guys on the field went with the dubs. Um, oh, know, good. Go the dubs. Come on, yeah, come on yeah. dubs, which seemed which seem to work. That's nice. I like that. The dubs. The, we should get some caps made up. In fact, we will. <laughs> I know a guy. We will. <laughs> Maybe between we can make our, this happen. Uh, well, yeah, I, I know a guy who does this. We can, we can get some dubs hats made up before the... Uh, before the return bout against the Dream Boys. I reckon that might be... I was having a look this morning, actually. That might be early-ish in the season. I think that might might end up mm-hmm. being in May. But um, I'll talk to the powers that be in the uh, in the other team, another WhatsApp group that I'm in, actually, so it won't be too hard to pull it together. Can we get Darren Stevens to play for us? Look, uh, probably not in May. That's when he does his finest work down at Canterbury. <laughs> He's got a professional contract <laughs> still. <laughs> uh, but we'll get Stevens-esque characters. Although, in saying that, you might be in England later in the year, Jeff, so there might be... Um, mm. There might be reason to pause and, and try and pull it off. It's a very, very busy June, July, August. I've, uh, I've had my head in the spreadsheet, head in the sheets, and um, there is barely a day <laughs> off uh, through there. So, But where well, there's a will and all the rest of it. Oh, well, well done, everybody. Yep. Final word, 11. Uh, the dubs, uh, two from two. Two from two. Uh, let's get into story time via a little game that we like to call Nerd Pledge, which I'm not going to yell out loudly because it's late at night and I don't want to annoy everybody around <laughs> us, but just imagine that I did. All right, it's a game that we play with the people on the Patreon page. They fund the show. They are the reason this show exists, and they do that not by sending us a, a normal denomination of currency, but a very specific denomination because that denomination relates to cricket in some way and our job is to guess what the number means. For instance, Michael Gormley, first cab off the Nerd Pledge rank this week with a very generous $19.51 in Australian D. Yes, uh, very good pledge. Thank you, Mike Gormley. Mike Mick, um, here's a clue. Uh, I'm not sure how quickly you'll get to this, but the number will be out of date on the 2nd of June. Well, it's the 31st of January, so either we are very, very, very late or we've got there in plenty of time. <laughs> Jeff, you can work that out. <laughs> yes. Well, that, that may give you an idea of um, just how steep the backlog is at the moment. But Michael's number, 1951, and it will be out of date on the 2nd of June. So... When I was looking at this, when I was thinking of this, I was thinking, what happened on the 2nd of June? What was due on the 2nd of June? And what I realised was that on the 2nd of June, 
in 2021, I can't actually remember what year it is anymore because they've all blurred into each other. England were due to start their last-minute two-match test series against New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, it's going to be a, a... It's a number relating to someone who was likely to play in that series. But doing a little more research, this is what I discovered. 19.51 is exactly the bowling average that James Anderson achieved in the first edition of the World Test Championship huh. across those two years of the WTC. Now, Mike Gormley was probably thinking that if Jimmy played in this New Zealand test, then the number would change. But the New Zealand tests were not part of the World Test Championship. That's right. They sat outside that. They were a little extra fixture for for New Zealand to to come over and acclimatise before they played the final, much to the chagrin of many, many Indian supporters who said that it wasn't fair that India didn't get to do that. India didn't get to do that because the IPL was scheduled to be played up until about three days before the World Test Championship. Um, (laughs) And then they cancelled it halfway through. So that's why they didn't get to play one ups in England. I'm sure if India had said, we'll play you in seven tests this summer, England, I'm sure the ECB would have taken them up on that. Yes, please. That was not the proposal put to them. Right. So, so 1951 is what Anderson returned from 12 test matches in the World Test Championship. His first one in the WTC wasn't much chop. That's when he did his calf after four overs at Edgebaston Mm -hmm. in the 19 Ashes. Came back uh, whenever it was, eight months later or six months later. Had had a quiet test at Centurion and then followed it up with five for 40 in an innings in Cape Town. Picked up five for 56 in the the next home summer against Pakistan. Got six for 40 in Gaul and then had that crazy spell of reverse swing in Chennai when England won and Anderson took three for 17 off many, many overs. Um, So he picked up 39 wickets in those 12 tests going at two runs and over just about, just over two and over and ended up averaging 19.51. Yeah, he's, he's, you know, he's passed it. It's too old. Got to get rid of him. Uh, yeah, time to move on. He's, he's, he's soaking up a spot. That could cut a young blood, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so, so 39 wickets in 12 tests through that stretch of time. I reckon he was retired off about 12 times as well, just going through it as you were reading through mm-hmm. those numbers. That test at Centurion, he didn't bowl well. He didn't have a good start to that series. And there was plenty of that, oh, I don't know, Jimmy had that calf injury. You know, there was some chat that he was going to pull the plug that year, had England been successful in 19 in winning the World Cup, winning the Ashes, that, that, that might have been enough for Jimmy. By the way, I doubt that would have been the case regardless, but there was some talk, you know, as there tends to be around these matters. Then, yeah, he starts poorly in South Africa, bowls magnificently well to set up that Cape Town victory, injures his rib, I reckon, in the second dig. That was the test when he broke a rib from, I reckon it was his his left arm, pulling it into his ribs, and that was the, the impact which broke the rib. So he missed the second, or missed the third and fourth test match. Then against Pakistan, you mentioned the 5 for 56, which is when he completes his 600th wicket in test cricket. We did a whole show on that. Let's not forget that you go back a test or two, and again, people were genuinely trying to pension him off. It was the first test at Manchester. He's, he's gone. It? He's over. Yeah, he yeah. Well, well, rumours. Well, time to pack it in. Well, he did. He did a media conference after the first test, which remember England won, courtesy of Chris Wokes and Josh Butler. But Jimmy didn't have a great test, nor did he have a, an outstanding series against the Windies. He was sort of the second fiddle to to Broad and to an extent Wokes as well. But. You get to that first test against Pakistan and, you know, it's it, there is a drumbeat, so much so that when it was announced that Anderson was going to do a press conference after that test, people were genuinely thinking, oh, fuck, he's pulling the pin. 
That's it. Or he's, you know, he'll play one more test or something like that. In the end, Jimmy being Jimmy, it was actually him fronting the media to get out and say he wanted to play the next week. And, and so he did. And it was in the third test when he was back to his absolute best, taking five for 56. And then it continued through at Gaul. I saw that come up in, um, in a little one of those little Twitter memories the other day. It was 12 months since that six for 40 to start the series. An economy rate, I think at one point he had five for 30 from 30 overs in that spell, something ridiculous like that. <laughs> and the sixth wicket was um, at Nourish and Dick Weller, who he, who he deceived with a slower ball. And as you said, that, that reverse swing spell at Chennai at the other end of that winter and still going strong at age 39 and, and still watching everything too. He loves cricket, doesn't he? I mean, he, he was up tweeting with us through the night, through the women's test this week. His love for the game hasn't subsided at all. So, yeah, don't, don't expect Anderson to retire because he's had enough. He'll retire because his body has had enough, not because his mind has. <laughs> Somebody, one, one of the English pack through the summer, someone was saying, how does uh, Anderson find the inspiration to keep going? And they said, well, probably the million pounds a year from the ECB helps. <laughs> but, uh... well, yeah. well, he'll, he'll make, <laughs> the thing is, he'll make just as much money when he retires, probably. Or maybe not quite as much. He'll make a shitload of money as a commentator around the world, I'm sure. But yeah, I mean, he is just, a, I mean, he's a, in, said with love, he's a badger. He's just as bad as we are. It's just that he happens to be England's greatest ever fast bowler. So, you know, fair play to him. Well, I reckon that's your number, Michael Gormley, you can let us know, uh, jump on the Discord page for Nerd Pledge or um, drop us a DM and, and let us know how close we got. Uh, a double header next up, $5.34 in AUD. This comes in from Jake Sheedy, who, uh, who's, a, who's a Hobart lad who I'm, uh, we didn't, I didn't get to catch up with down there with Sheeds, uh, unfortunately, and Sean Barry. And, and Jake is up first and there is a simple hint. The hint is the kid. Yeah, well, and look, me being me, as soon as I see the kid, uh, I think of Dermot Burton. And coincidentally, uh, this morning, Jeff, I'm not, I'm not sure if you saw this tweeted into your feed, but um, Ian Botham was on uh, on Twitter today in Australia saying something like, so wonderful to play golf with an old mate. And there he is, arm around Dermot Burton, playing golf together <laughs> somewhere on the peninsula, I think it was. Can you imagine the damage those two did when they were hanging out together in the 80s on you know, various trips to Australia that Botham was making? They would have been quite the duo. And of course, Dermot Burton has been on the final word before um, when... Uh, when well, it would been this time last year when I took the catch off him. Anyway, but he still loves his cricket, Dermy. He, he still plays for Heather Hill every week. There he is. He, you know, he he turns out and plays for. I think it's the third eleven there in the uh, Mornington Peninsula Cricket Association. He's played, I, I, but I went into his my cricket and I thought, let's have a look. Let's see how Dermy goes. Well, pretty well is the answer. He's played sixty nine matches so far. Nice. There's no five for thirty four there, but. Um, I think I'm right in saying that Derm opened the bowling for Frankston in the Dowling Shield back in sort of 19... Oh, gosh, 1978 it would have been. No, he's born in uh, 1964, isn't he? So I suppose that would have been uh, the summer of 1979, 80 or, or something like that, just a couple of years before he uh, made his VFL debut. But these days he's very much a batsman. Uh, his highest score is 104 not out uh, in 2018 against Karim Downs, and he's made uh, seven other half centuries. So an average of 28 in 52 innings it isn't too bad in community cricket. I think sometimes, you know, we think about test average. If you're averaging 28, you know, playing in the thirds. You've had a bloody good year uh, and he's done that over five years with Heather Hill. Okay, this is where I thought the 534, yeah, it's tangential, but let's, let's just go with it. As they're not bowling anymore, just one wicket, but he has taken 34 catches so far. So 534 is the number, 34 catches, and of course five-time day, five-time night, premiership player for Hawthorne. Five is a big number for Dermot Burton. Five, 34. 
Does it work for you, Jeff? Okay, okay, yeah. I, I th- well, I think if Sheeds, who, who of course shares a nickname with a and a last name with a an, an AFL icon in Kevin Sheedy, um, if if Sheeds were going for a niche tangential. AFL, VFL football reference to get into the show that somehow went via cricket, then I think 534, five premierships, 34 catches is the sort of thing that Sheeds might think that you would work out. Yeah, I mean, he's asking a lot of me in theory, but if he knows me, he's not asking that much at all. As soon as you say the no. kid and cricket, you know I'm going to dive into terms, my cricket, and you know that's that's the next logical step. Anyway, okay. uh, back to actual yeah, cricket. I'm, I'm convinced. Yeah, well, you know, we'll see, we'll see. Back to cricket. And, and look, it's one of those ones, Jake. If I'm wrong, lie to me. But let's go uh, into the international game to find another 5 for 34, shall we? Uh, that's what Nathan Lyon, who was a kid himself at age 23, took on Testaboo at Gaul in 2011. It's a, a little bit misleading that, you know, you think of Nathan Lyon at 23. He was genuinely a baby, you know, in, in, in professional cricket terms. You think of a 23-year-old these days, they've played four years of Big Bash and, you know, probably a, a bunch of Shield cricket if they're getting to play for Australia. Someone like Cameron Green's 22, but he's played loads of professional cricket. Well, that absolutely wasn't the case for Nathan Lyon, who bounced onto the scene in 10-11 through the Big Bash, a great story, but only four Shield games at the end of that year and only two wickets in, in the tour game in Sri Lanka. He, he pretty much got over there because of uh, how well he bowled in Zimbabwe for uh, Australia A against Zimbabwe A and they said, you can be the second spinner alongside Michael Beer, who was you know one of many twirlers who got an opportunity uh, in the years after Shane Warne retired. But yeah, it's a it's a staggering start really, the 5 for 34, with all that in mind. My story that day was that I was still obviously work, well not obviously for those who might be new to the show, back in that era I was working in, in federal politics and I'd played with Nathan and I sent him an email the day before his debut to say, you know, keep doing what you're doing, keep flighting the ball, you know, don't do what, I don't know why the fuck I thought I should impart my wisdom upon him, but I, I said something to the effect of, <laughs> you know, so many spinners, finger spinners, when they get to the top level, they try and push it through too quickly, but you're, you get such beautiful flight, keep doing your thing. Anyway, he wrote back and, you know, said something to the effect of, you know, thanks mate, very nervous, hope it goes well. And it did go well. I, I was doing that day, I was meant to be going to a community cabinet meeting. I don't know if you remember these, Jeff. These were these, uh, uh, an initiative of, of the Rudd government where we would take the entire cabinet out to a, a regional or community town or something like that and um, and everyone would be there and, and answer questions from the punters. Well, I uh, missed the memo that day and wasn't wearing the correct uniform, kind of accidentally on purpose, so that I could watch the cricket back in my hotel room. And of course, Nathan <laughs> gets Kumar Sen- Gakara out with the most astonishing delivery uh, out of the rough. Uh, the great catch from Michael Clark moving to his left. Uh, probably the last piece of iconic Tony Gregg commentary as well, just going absolutely bananas. Of course, uh, uh, Greggy died uh, about six months later, something like that. But yes, that was Lyon's first delivery in the 16th over uh, of that innings. It was the same uh, innings that Trent Copeland took a wicket in his second over as well. Um, not quite the career that Lyon went on to have, but they had that special day together there in Gaul. Hell of a collapse as well, Jeff. At one point, Sri Lanka are 87 for three. They end up all out 106 when Watto gets busy and then Lyon takes that brilliant catch off his own bowling to finish, so 15.3 overs 
five for 34, and he's gone on to take, so far anyway, 415 test wickets, and that was the first of 18 five-wicket hauls, and presumably uh, many still to come. But, yeah, I, I recommend going back and watching The Vision because you get the whole Tony Gregg, what a catch, what a catch, uh, when, uh, when, um, when, uh, when Lyon takes the, the fifth and final wicket of that amazing spell and, and one of the great modern stories of Australian cricket, the true bolter, Nathan Lyon, and a kid as well. The kid. Uh, very good, Adam. Sean Barry's one. Sean has a clue. He, he says, This Wellington stalwart and cult hero was still playing club cricket until 2019. In his time, the Black Caps were weekend cricketers plus Hadley, Wright and Martin Crow. He's now a taxi driver. Uh, when England were in New Zealand a, a few years back, Lord Botham of wherever was one of his fares. His lordship did not recognise his driver, even though they'd played against each other many times. Uh, <laughs> our nerd pledge is arguably the luckiest mm. man alive to play more than a solitary test. Well, there's only one direction that this could possibly go. Uh, it it has to be you and Chatfield because he did become a taxi driver. He did never stop bowling. And the, the solitary test reference is because he nearly got killed playing cricket when he debuted in Auckland. He got hit by Peter Lever with a short ball that deflected off the bat and hit him in the head. And in, in a very frightening passage on the field, um, he stopped breathing. The England physio was out there, had to stop him swallowing his tongue, gave him mouth-to-mouth, gave him a heart massage and brought him back to life, basically. Um, and the advent of helmets came along very shortly after that. That was a, a big part of why they became compulsory. So uh, he took a couple of years to come back from that, you and Chatfield, and uh, did so against Australia at Christchurch, which would not have been unintimidating given he was facing up to Dennis Lilly and, and Gary Gilmore, who were pretty quick customers themselves at, at that time. So 43 tests all up, you and Chatfield, 123 wickets operating at the other end from Hadley through until 1989, and uh, he, he got a 10-wicket haul at Port of Spain in 1985. Did you and Chatfield um, took the handful of wickets that Hadley didn't get at the Gabba in, in 1985 and, and took more at, at the Wacker the next week and, and he was part of the team that won in England for the first time in 86 as well. Did a fair bit of work when Hadley wasn't around as well when they were facing England in 1987. Took 13 wickets at 15 leading the attack and, and had his great moment with the bat at Dunedin in 1985. New Zealand had Chasing 278 against Pakistan. Wazim Akram hits Lance Cairns and, and knocks him out. They're 228 for eight. And the last 50 runs together were... Friend of the show, Jeremy Coney, 111 not out. You and Chatfield, 21 not out, won the series. 2-0, Coney sticking it out at the end, eight wickets down. Uh, played 114 one day, as did you and Chatfield as well, for 140 wickets um, and uh, took a, a five for 34 in that format, which is going to be the reason that this number has come through. From Sean Barry, uh, the five for 34 in his second one day when he was playing against Australia, kept the Australians to 217 for nine, got Greg Chappell out, got Alan Border out and New Zealand uh, completed the chase in the final over and made that a win. So, yeah, as, as Sean says, he kept playing Masters level, kept playing club cricket, uh, played for the New Zealand under-60s until a few years ago against Australia, the old boys club in Wellington, and, and finally pulled the pin on his club career when he was 68. Never made 100, got a golden duck in his final outing, uh, but he continued playing the game that he loved um, from where he started in 1968 
in Wellington, you and Chatfield. Yeah, the Nene Express, that's the club that he sort of played at uh, until the end. Yeah, that, that sort of, you know, I, I can't even imagine how hard that would have been for him to have returned to have played at all after nearly dying. I mean, that, that's uh, the, the pictures are horrible, uh, you know, um, hit in the temple. I think he did swallow his tongue, actually. Like, it was a pretty graphic, a pretty miraculous thing that he that he survived and kept doing what he was doing. He, he spoke almost mournfully about stopping as well. He, he kind of realised that um, when... I think it was when he was playing for the New Zealand over-60s that he just couldn't be effective anymore. So he's like, you know, he it's not like he retired because he because he, he didn't... And not a million miles away from the conversation we were having about James Anderson and Test cricket, his mind was still willing. It's not like kind of most club cricketers who reach the point when other events in their life overtake the cricket and they have to prioritise family. Or, and I'm not to say that Chatfield didn't do that as well, but most people reach a stage when playing club cricket in, I don't know, I suppose in their 40s or something like that becomes something that they realise is in the past, not in the future. But Chatfield kept on keeping on and, uh, and yeah, great of New Zealand cricket, that partnership with Hadley, that performance with Coney. I tried to find it, that test match at Dunedin from 85 on YouTube and sadly that the footage doesn't exist on, on that platform. If you've got it somewhere, if you're a New Zealand cricket fan and, and can find a way to, to get that that digitised, I'd, I'd love to see Chatfield and and Coney batting out against Wazi Macram having you know himself having knocked out Lance Cairns and fractured his skull with that bouncer. You get a sense of you know history repeating there. In fact, I think it was um, Chatfield who helped stretch a Cairns off the field. So again, there's a lot of. Uh, Mm. A lot of reminders there of how important helmets are and how dangerous that era was, especially for tail end batsmen. But, yep, uh, a great of New Zealand cricket and glad we had the chance to talk about him today, you and Chatfield. Let's go on to our next number. Uh, it is in the Swedish krona again. A few people have been enjoying dabbling in the <laughs> currency of the Swedes um, because it gives them a bit more room to go up the register if they're not able to, to do so in, in, in other global currencies. Chris Church's Lindsay, he's taken... A, a foray over to Sweden and sent through 42.50 in Swedish krona, 42.50. What does that suggest to you, Adam? Yeah, well, originally when I saw it, I thought, well, 42.5, there'll be a great of the game with that that batting average. And I guess there kind of sort of is, but for different reasons. So Roger Hardigan, that was his batting average, but we've told that story a number of times before about his magical 116 on, on Test Boer alongside Clem Hill, Adelaide in, in the 50-degree heat. So we won't do that again, but um, Roger Hardigan, of course, only played a couple of Test matches, so that allows him to have that nice round number of, of 42.5. We uh, were also having a natter about Roger Hardigan during our Adelaide live show with Steve Finn earlier in the summer. Uh, Mahinda Amanath uh, is another with that sort of bang-on average. He had a much longer career. He debuted in 1969 and finished up in, in 1988, so a very long uh, test career. He played 69 times and made nice. 11 centuries. Uh, I had a look at Law 42.5 as well. We've had a couple of those recently. You know, if you, when you're in the 40s or in the 30s, there's a chance it'll be... Um, an MCC uh, law of the game. Well, 42.5 is about level four offences and actions by umpires. Uh, Subclause one reads that it's an offence on level four uh, to threaten to assault an umpire, make inappropriate and deliberate physical contact with an umpire, physically assault a player or any other person and committing any other act of violence. So uh, that's, um, I thought, well, maybe. Has anyone ever belted an umpire? Well, that's more of an AFL thing. Uh, not so much. Uh, it's more, you know, our conversation. Mm. Not about Dermy specifically, but the era he played in. Um, there it, there are a couple a, of umpire incidents. 
Maybe it's the Daniel Medvedev rule. Um, you, you've got to be nice to the umpire. So I was, I was watching the, <laughs> the tennis final with Barat Sundaresan in Canberra, and I was going Nadal, and he was inexplicably going Medvedev. And what? he's like, oh, you know. He, 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 says, Why was oh, Barat like, following I, Medvedev? I don't know, but he, well, he he explained it. He said, oh, I like that he's, you know, that, that he does things that he shouldn't do and he's explosive and all the rest of it. And I was like, Barat, you are an umpire. You, <laughs> you are a cricket umpire who has to report people for uh, disrespecting umpires when, when you are umpiring in, in Adelaide cricket. How can you go for the guy who keeps ripping into umpires for doing their job in, in a way that he apparently doesn't approve of? But, you know, life is not simple, Adam. That's all I can say. That's true, Dan, Daniel Cherney said on Twitter last night that Medvedev was the perfect Soviet heel. It's sort of like the way that he yeah. presented to the audience through the course of the fortnight, especially the semi-final and the final. Actually, that was Barat's reasoning because Barat's a massive wrestling fan, and he was, and that was his his summary. He said Medvedev is the heel. He, he mm. plays the heel to perfection. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we'll see more of him. Bloody good tennis player. Great final. Uh, where are we? Forty two point five zero for Chris. Now, how's this? How's this work for you, Jeff? 42 times 50. I'm thinking, who's made, like, 42 50s? Well, someone has, and it's a favourite of ours, Mizbah Al-Haq. In his one-day oh, international yes. career, 42 times never he hit a 50 a and never made 100. Never had a crash. Yes. I mean, getting to 100 for Pakistan wasn't really an issue for him more broadly. He... He did so 10 times in Test cricket. Of course, those famous twin tons at, uh, at Abu Dhabi against Australia back in, in 2014. But in one day international cricket, his highest score was 96 not out across a 162-game career, an average of 43. So, I mean, he was a, a very important player for, for Pakistan, but often batted at, at five or six, so didn't have the opportunity to progress to three figures uh, too often. He, he played between 2001 and 2017 in, in that format of the game. He did make an unbeaten 99 in Test cricket. That was in his final series in, uh, against uh, the Windies in Jamaica in, in 2017. So his second last Test match, the one before the uh, the Shannon Gabriel Test, and that just got me yep. got me googling a few other things. There've only been nine players in Test cricket to be out for 99. Sorry, to be not out rather for 99, 199, or 299. I thought that was that was kind of interesting. There's only been nine instances of that across the game. I suppose there've been a lot more people out for 99. That's a fairly regular occurrence but um, yes 96 not out with his high score in one day cricket that was against England at the Oval back in 2013 uh, they were batting first and it was an innings of 127 balls so he kind of had no one to blame but himself with that one but the others were mostly in chases so a 93 not out in 2011 chasing he made 83 not out three times all when setting targets. So it's unusual, I suppose, for him to have had that exact number, 83 not out, uh, come up uh, on three occasions through his one-day international career. But the number that matters most as far as Chris Church's Lindsay is concerned is 42.50, and I'm going with Misbah Al-Haq, 42 times hitting a half-century in one day is for no tons. I love that. That's a, that's a good... Uh, skewed interpretation of the number, which which sounds so good that again, Chris, if that's not it, lie to us, lie <laughs> to us sweetly. Uh, our next number comes in from Kumar Gopal Krishnan. Mm. The number is four dollars and twenty one cents. And he's got a clue here. This relates to the first match I saw in person, and the player in question had a remarkable match. I used to model my bowling action on his with a very bad impression. He tonked Mashrafa Mortaza to reach his milestone. This match also featured a bizarre dismissal, come to think of it not very bizarre, of another African behemoth. Behemoth might not be 
a kind word. Hope this helps. Thanks for the show. Okay, Jeff, all yours. You are welcome for the show, Kuma. And this is where I went with this number. All right, 421. I thought, and and we're, we're thinking of players from Africa. So 421 would have to be Sean Pollock, who took 421 mm-hmm. test wickets, I would think. Playing against Bangladesh, he only hit sixes in one match against Bangladesh. So he played one T20 international against them and didn't bat. He had the interesting bowling analysis of three for 40 off 21 balls. I'm not sure if that's a good day out or not, Um, but at least he got some wickets. He only batted once against Bangladesh in tests and made 41 in Dhaka when they won by an innings. But on that same tour in 2003, in in an ODI, he made 38 not out at the end of the innings off 20 balls, and that included a couple of big hits over the rope. Uh, He also picked up three for 17 off seven overs. So I think you could say that he had a remarkable match in that sense. I think that fits. The part I don't get is about the milestone. So so Kumar says he tonked Mashrafe Mortaza to reach his milestone, but 38 not out is not a milestone. I looked at his career progression in that innings. He raised his 2300th run. I don't think we can call that a milestone. He's 30th six. Is that a milestone? Not really. Neither of those works. So where the milestone is, I'm not sure, but he only ever hit sixes once against Bangladesh. So this is surely where it has to come from. And the other bit I'm not sure about is the behemoth. Now, if you look at that team, Neil McKenzie, Mark Boucher, these are the players who batted that day. Berta Dippenar, Jacques Rudolph, Herschel Gibbs, none of them very big. Graham Smith was big, and I suppose you could refer to him as a behemoth. I think McKenzie, um, was it McKenzie muscle on muscle on muscle? I feel like McKenzie... he wasn't very tall. I think he was just built like a brick shit ass. I yeah. think... He was, he was, Mackenzie was sort of, my memory of his build, it was, he was basically the South African Damien Martin. He was, he was that sort of, sort of player. He was strong, but he wasn't enormous. Okay. Um, you know, Graham Smith was very tall and big and maybe you could call him a behemoth, but I searched around and I couldn't find anything about his dismissal that would make it bizarre. The, the scorecard says he was bowled by Sanwar Hussain. Maybe he was bowled in a weird way, you know, maybe it deflected off a bird or something, but there's no footage available there was nothing I could dig up. And the only thing I could think of was the milestone part could refer to the fact that this was Graham Smith's first series as captain and it was Pollock's first series after being sacked as captain after the 2003 World Cup. So was the milestone to do with hitting a six in his first match not as captain? I mean, that part doesn't quite convince me, but I I, I can't think of it being anything else given the four-two-one and a bowler who bats because it has to be someone who Kumar modelled his bowling action on and someone who was able to hit sixes. So that's where I'm going, Kumar. But let me know. Hop in the DMs or jump on the Discord and let me know if uh, if I've got anywhere close to the pin. Well, the good thing, Kumar, is we can swing back and do it all again in our revisit shows. Uh, we mentioned we're probably going to do one of those later in the week. So if you get onto this quickly and you give us a very very strong steer I stress this about the clues and I, I don't want to get on my high horse here but the, the, if you're going to give us a clue give us a bloody good one because some of the clues we've got recently uh, have been um, uh, have been uh, exotic to say the least so give Jeff a very <laughs> very strong prod and we'll try and get your revisit for 421 into the weekend show on Friday Saturday double header next up Jeff our first double header of the day it's 400 a second 
Oh, second no, right, you are. Our second doubleheader. We had 5.34, didn't double, we? A double-doubleheader. A double-doubleheader. Uh, twin tons twice. Now, 4.00 is the number, so it, it's definitely a nerd pledge because 4.00 isn't a preset for a Julio pledge. That's 2.00. Dan Walsh is the first, and the second is James Hertzenrotter. Now, I mean, 400, Jeff, the, when you see that number, I suppose you, you well... We, we we think of Lara, but uh, but I sort of doubt that either of these. I, I mean, I you know I I just don't imagine either of these men have thought they're gonna. We we, we want to hear more about Brian Lara breaking the, the Matthew Hayden world record where he went where each hundred was slower than the one that came before it. He so desperately wanted that record. That doesn't. I mean, you know, a brilliant achievement, and, sh- and and so it goes. Lara, a genius player, but we don't need to tell that story, do we? We have we've t- we've talked about it before. Mm. Uh, we've talked about the three seven five, the three eighty, the four hundred, the wonderful epic pettiness of Lara six months after Hayden broke the record, saying, "I'll have that back, thanks, champion." <laughs> um, but but yeah, I, th- I think we need to go further afield on on four zero zero. Well, what I did. I was kind of interested in this because the previous week at Hobart, I was getting in the weeds a little bit around Sam Billings being England player 700, which is, which I acknowledge isn't as clear-cut as it might be, but I think we, we arrived at the consensus that he was capped 700. And I wanted yep. to know on commentary, you know, could rattle off who else had an even number. So Sammy Woods was a test player 100 for England, who we've talked about before. Bill Edrich was player 300. He has a grandstand named after him at Lord, so he went okay. Uh, Michael Vaughan uh, was was cap number 600 and of course led England to the 2005 Ashes and made 18 test centuries. But what about 400? And what do you know? Uh, play the music, DC. Yes, it's a a dusty old bastard with Cat 400. Uh, Just qualifying, just. I I had to bend the rules a little bit here to to shoehorn this in, but bear with me. Peter Walker wore Cat number 400 for England. Now, Cat 200 would have been a much better DOB, but we'll save that for another time. So if you're a Julio pledger and you want to tell us that you wish to have a DOB to be part of your 200, well, I'll tell you all about Andy Ducat, but not today. Today we're talking about Peter Walker, who... I knew his story a little bit because he passed away uh, a couple of years ago and there were a couple of articles written about him just at the start of the pandemic, actually, but didn't die of COVID, but it was around that time. Walker played three test matches for England in, in 1960. He was a very tall, six-foot-four, right-handed, middle-order player who did his finest work for Glamorgan. He also bowled left-arm uh, seam-up but had the ability to bowl spin as well. My sense is he probably took more wickets bowling left-arm orthodox than he did bowling left-arm medium pace, which is why he was a good all, all-round option for England when he was picked in, in 1960 against South Africa. Didn't really get much of a go in those test matches. He made a, he made a half century at Lords, but that was kind of it. A trifle unlucky, really, because in those three test matches, batting down the list, he got a 50, a 37 and a 30. He was as much there probably for the, for the all-round option he provided, batting at 7, 8 and 9 across those three test matches. But England had lots of options with spin then and there, so they didn't turn to him again. Interestingly, only Martin Saggers and Toby Rowland-Jones have a 3-and-zip record after the war, only not to play test cricket again. So, 
uh, three games, three wins against South Africa. Uh, he cracked on though. Uh, he he didn't sort of leave it there. He reached a thousand runs eleven times in, in the days of uncovered pitches. That was no mean feat. He did the double as well. Uh, he took a hundred wickets in in one season. That of nineteen sixty one. Uh, that was his best season all round actually. So he took eight hundred wickets at twenty eight with that left arm spin mostly. But yeah, it's the all round part of his life that I want to touch on here, or his cricketing life anyway. He took six hundred and ninety seven catches in just four hundred and sixty nine matches. Most of those apparently were at short legs. So in nineteen sixty one, his best year, he did the double, a thousand runs, a hundred wickets, but also seventy three catches, which is the third best treble, if you like, of all time, following Wally Hammond and Mickey Stewart, who both took more catches than that when making a thousand runs and taking one hundred wickets. But it says a bit about how he was always in the game. He was a big part of Glamorgan's glorious 1969 campaign where uh, they were undefeated and county champions. In 1972, he made the shift from the field to the press box, obviously not the first to do that, but did it really, really well. He, he was a, a print reporter. He ended up moving into, into the BBC where he was a broadcaster on television. He was the face of the Sunday League coverage in those pioneering early days of cricket being on television and limited overs cricket being on television. And an all-rounder to the end as well, off the field too. He, he went into cricket administration after he finished on television. He, in 1996, he became the first chief executive of Cricket Wales and had a big hand in, in leading up the operation, which contributed to Sophia Gardens being the, the national centre of cricket there for, for Welsh cricket. Um, and not long before he died, he became the president of Glamorgan in his later years and earned an MBE for services to cricket in 2011 and, yes, passed away in April of 2020. He was celebrated across the cricketing community. A true club legend, uh, said Glamorgan in their statement when he passed away. He was a great all-rounder and cap number 400, Peter Walker. Very good. Proper, uh, I think, DOB on the field, um, not so dusty off the field. Yeah, that's right. Now... For James Hertzenreiter, 400, I think this was because I was already thinking about Sean Pollock and 421 test wickets. I started thinking about who's taken 400 wickets in test cricket. And so this is where I went with 400 because mm-hmm. we know that Dennis Lilly got to 355. Both and went past him to 383 uh, and nobody cracked the 400 until someone we were talking about just moments ago, Richard Hadley, in 1990. So they've played 113 years of test cricket before anybody gets to 400 career wickets as people start to play more games. If you look at the list now, there are 17 players who've gone past 400. And just because this piqued my interest, I thought I'd work out the sequence, when when and how it happened, because it's, it's Hadley in 1990... Kapil Dev gets there in 92. He'd played 115 test matches to get his 400th wicket, so a, a tribute to longevity as much as anything else. And then nothing much for a while, and then there's a bit of a glut. In 99, it's Courtney Walsh. 2000, was a Macram and Kirtley Ambrose get there. 2001, Shane Warne. 2002, Murali and Glenn McGrath. 2004, Anil Kumble and 2006, Sean Pollock. And then there's a bit of a, a lull. There's a few years before Harbourjan gets there in 2011. And then it's James Anderson in 2015, along with Dale Stain, Rangana Herath in 2017, Stuart Broad in 2018, and then Ravichandran Ashwin in 2021, and Nathan Lyon just a, a few months ago. Uh, but what's particularly interesting is the, the difference in how quickly players were able to get there. So Richard Hadley did it in 80 test matches. Pretty much everyone who comes along for a while after that, they're between 90 
two for Warren and 115 for Capel Dev and, and Stuart Broad. But you look at the few who did it a lot more quickly than that. It's McGrath in 87 tests, Anil Kumble in 85, Herath in 84, Dale Stain matched Hadley by doing it in 80 test matches, Ashwin did it in 77, and of course Morelli, who just hoovered up bags of wickets, 72 test matches to take 400 wickets, which I still just enjoy going back and looking at Morelli's numbers from time to time because every aspect of his career that you can look at statistically is outlandish it is unreasonable but for somebody to turn around and take 400 test wickets in 72 matches is is extraordinary and uh, I always feel like we need to stick up for Morelli a bit after he was traduced and undermined in, in Australia for all those years well, yeah, I mean, you go through it. The, the number that stands out most to me on that page is Shane Warne, 92. I, I would have, had you said to me, you know, what was the gap between Morelli and Warne on, on that measure, I would have thought like a handful of test matches, not 20. I wouldn't have imagined that Glenn McGrath got there five quicker than Warne either. I mean, Harath got there eight test matches quicker than Warne. And yeah, that's partly a function of uh, the conditions that Harath played the majority of his tests in, at home. But but still... And bowling more. It's, it's sort of a function of, you know, Warne had to share the ball with other great bowlers, whereas yes. Harath and Morelli were usually the, the the very best in their team with a bit of daylight to second and third. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's the old Lockett Dunstall thing there, isn't it, about playing in a great forward line versus being one out. But... Yeah, it's, yeah, that, that is interesting to me. I, I think what you what we would find is that Warren went from four hundred to five hundred quite quickly. Even accounting for the fact that he had that twelve month ban in the middle of it all, he really went nuts upon returning to the Test team in two thousand and four. Really, until uh, in, until the end, he he put the foot down and, and motored through the five hundreds and the six hundreds. Mm, yeah, yeah that, well, forty um, wickets in in the Ashes series of 05, for instance. Yeah, and uh, yeah. and I think he took the most wickets ever in a three match series against Sri Lanka uh, in two thousand and four. And there was a similar stat to that in Pakistan in, uh, in well, not in Pakistan against Pakistan in in two thousand and two. So he had his most productive years at the end, but a twenty test gap between him and Murali and. And uh, even Adil Kumble got their seven tests before Warren. Again, that big caveat that, that Warren played half his tests in Australia, you know, so where he wasn't mm. playing on pitches that were requiring him to take half of what was there in the fourth innings. But he often did. He often did. Mm. So, um, no, good stuff. Yes, so that's that's uh, it's an indistinct 400, James, but, you know, on a broad, uh, flat, open number, that's where we went. We've got a couple more. A regular correspondent with the show, Dane Hanstead, a uh, strong representative of uh, regional Victoria. Uh, he's come through with $2.39, Adam. Yeah, well, there's a lot of 239s, isn't there? There's uh, the 239. That, well, we've seen two of them, haven't we? We saw yep. Adam Voges rattle off 239 at Wellington, uh, a, a match that we've come back to a lot because of the uh, the front foot no ball thing. And uh, I, I was in the Discord channel this morning, Jeff, talking to a couple of people about the side crease no ball because, of course, uh, Alana King yesterday, they went upstairs to check that. But I suppose the third umpire, the TV umpire, isn't watching for that ball to ball so you're probably only going to see those called in the event of a wicket as it was yesterday with King and I think that was well handled by Bruce Oxenford by the way in terms of uh, making the common sense decision and getting on with it but according to one of our correspondents they think that she might have broken that back line like half a dozen times in, in the lead up to the wicket being taken but mm-hmm. anyway that's the Voges link there uh, Stephen Smith made 239 at the Wacker in 2017 against England batting with Mitch Marsh but 
I don't think Dane's going there. I don't think Dane's going big dog 239 test cricket. He's just not that kind of guy. We've had Graham Vimpani <laughs> with Dane in the past. We've had a, another Wangaratta number. I can't remember what the link was, but we do, we do rural numbers with Dane, right? Mm-hmm. So on that basis, uh, well, you know, it could be Marcus Harris 239 at Glenelg, but that, that's not rural. That's just, that's just you know... Five kilometres south of town, isn't it? That was the, the, the match where all the innings where Will Pekofsky uh, and he had the record partnership with Victoria and Pekofsky made 255 not out, but Harris was there on 239. So let's go back a little bit here. Let's broaden out to rural grounds. And what do you know? Jason Cheeseburger, the Armburger, made 239 for Victoria as well. And he did so at Lismore in 2006 towards the end of his distinguished career for, for the Vicks. He... Um, was playing against New South Wales in in January 2006 in his final year, I think it was, and, and rattled off a nine-and-a-half-hour classic epic where he was up against a couple of test bowlers in, in Dougie Bollinger, who would play for Australia a couple of years later, and, and Matthew Nicholson, who had a couple of years before. Armberger obviously top-scored out of uh, the 519 uh, that Victoria made. Amusingly, on this scorecard, Brad Hodge made a duck, batting at three, so he'll still be furious about that, I'm sure. But he made up for it in bowling first change, so... That after they were all out, Hodgie took the ball bowling, presumably off spin, but maybe he was just so pissed off at getting out early that he's like, nah, fuck it. I'm going to bowl some seam up and take some blokes' heads off. <laughs> I think either are possible, we might ask him. Um, of course, that was the year when Victoria went on to concede 900 in the final against Queensland, and, and that was the end of Armberger's career. But he was a fabulous player. He made 5,505 runs for Victoria at 42, which is the seventh most for that state in shield cricket. He came down from New South Wales in, I think, about 1998 or something like that as a lot of players did they couldn't get a game for New South Wales which was often effectively the test team so they they went further afield for opportunities and he certainly took his at the MCG he made 13 shield tons he twice made twin tons one of only three Victorians to uh, achieve that on two occasions and just a little bit more before we get off this on, on the Oaks Oval in Lismore that's the last of the three first class games that were played there the first was a thrilling shield match between Queensland and New South Wales in 1979, which was like a, a 200 against 300 against 300 against 200, kind of a close fought thing across four days where New South Wales won uh, by four wickets. And then the touring Indians in 1991, Jeff, you'll like this. India get absolutely mauled by an innings by New South Wales inside three days. But uh, top scoring in both innings was a young Sachin Tendulkar who made 82 uh, and 59. Didn't top score in the game, though. That was Michael Bevan, who made an unbeaten 115 uh, there at Lismore. But, yes, uh, I say bring first-class cricket back to the regions and and why not back to Lismore, where where Jason Armberger made 239 of the best uh, back in 2006. How's that, Dane Hanstead? I reckon we might be close. Well, pe- people love telling you about how Adam Gilchrist came from Lismore. I'm sure he played at the Oaks Oval many of times. But who knew that Sachin made uh, 100 in the match, 82 and 59? They should have a statue of Sachin outside the Oaks Oval. <laughs> one of Adam Gilchrist and one of Sachin just, just facing off. And maybe one of Jason Arnberger as well. Why not? And one of Michael Bevan while we're at it. Made in heaven. Get, get him get him cast in bronze at Lisbon. That's, um, that's Dane, some kind of dinner party. That's, uh, you know, and, and all of, <laughs> out of all the people at the dinner party, I'd probably ask most questions of Jason Arnberger. I'm more interested in, <laughs> in Victoria's shield bin of 0304 than I am of Sachin's 100 international centuries, I've got to say. Well, I mean, do you think Jason Arnberger has 
a Twitter account where he wishes happy birthday to everybody <laughs> he ever played with all through the year. I don't think so. I bet there'd be some spicier takes on there. One more number to come. It is from Christopher Byrne. The number is 11, I think this was in pounds, 11 uh, pounds 13. Now, just to float that in the in the episode today so far, we've talked about twin tons. We've talked about players doing the double. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and we've talked about going back, going going right back in county cricket history. And this is one of these numbers that I'd, I had to think about this for quite a while. I had to search, I had to ruminate uh, to try to work out the angle. And then when I arrived at this conclusion, I'm feeling pretty good about this number. So okay. I know that Christopher Byrne is interested in Yorkshire cricket. Mm-hmm. We've had numbers from him previously, um, also keenly it uh, has an interest in Lancashire and Gloucestershire, I think, but but I think he's a Yorkshire man on the basis of previous numbers. And this brings us back to George Hurst, who we have mentioned on the show, but I don't think we've really talked about George Hurst much in detail, which is, you know, the, he, he comes up in various stories. He's the he's the one in the apocryphal, we'll get him in singles with Wilfred Rhodes in the, the last wicket partnership in, in the test match and so on. But a crazy career like George Hurst is is one of the great great all-rounders played for nearly 30 years in first class cricket made over 36,000 first class runs as well as taking 2,742 wickets having played 826 first class matches so he was a left armer he wasn't super quick but apparently he could make the ball swerve in the air he was he's he's credited with being um, almost the inventor of new ball bowling as it is today in terms of using the shine on the ball to to make it absolutely misbehave in midair and, and and catch players out and so he took piles and piles of wickets he's a bowler who helped bowl out Australia in a test match in 1902 for 36 runs which remains Australia's lowest ever score in a test and not content with that he then fronted up for Yorkshire the next week against the touring Australians and bowled them out for 23 (laughs) (laughs) so had a little bit of um you might say these days a a mental stranglehold over that touring australian side and so we talk about these kind of players doing the double as as you did before which is taking 100 wickets and making a thousand runs in a season and lots of the great players did this a lot of times the george hurst did it 14 times to the point where it's it's not really remarkable but there are a couple of things that George Hurst still holds on his own. One is, as far as I could tell, I'm pretty sure this is still the case. He's the only player to make twin tons and take twin five-wicket hauls in a first-class match, oh. which, which is fairly useful. How did, you, how did you try and work that out? Basically by, try, by looking at every instance of twin ton makers and working out if any of them bowled and then manually checking which Bloody was a pain in the ass. So, so that's why I'm, I'm um, you know, I, I, I won't say it categorically, but I'm pretty confident that that is yep. still the case. Another thing is that he remains the only player to have done the double-double, which we're also sort of tangentially referring to, as in he, he's the only player to make 2,000 runs and take 200 wickets in a county season, which he did on one occasion in 1906, I think it might have been. But 
Another thing that he holds is he is still the fastest player to ever do the double. So, and this was in 1906. So, in in the last three days of June in 1906, he played a match at Leighton against Essex, mm-hmm. and he took six wickets in the match, uh, which took his season tally from 98 to 104. He had already got his thousand runs for the season by that point. So, by June the 30th, he had a thousand runs and a hundred wickets in a county season, Bloody which remains hell. the fastest by a distance and by that stage by June the 30th after that match his run tally for the season was 1,113 runs <laughs> Christopher Burns number 11-13 ah oh, Jeff what a way to finish it bang <laughs> that is a beauty we've said it a couple of times already Christopher but you wouldn't want to be telling Jeff he's got that one wrong <laughs> he's putting the yards <laughs> Yeah, well, look, it's not a season tally number, so it's not it's not something that is as easy to work out. But I think I'm pretty I'm pretty bloody confident that's got to be it. Um, and Chris, you've also come out of the hat as the winner of the Brick Lane slab. Um, now you you are probably in the UK, uh, which means you probably can't get it yourself because it. it it has to go to someone in Australia. But if you know someone in Australia who you like and you would like them to have a, a case of delicious Brick Lane beers, uh, we can make that happen and you can make that happen and you can take all of the credit. Well, I, I think we've had a blinder in terms of the new numbers this week and it's only fitting that we're able to um, celebrate the blinder that Brick Lane have had as well. They, as we discussed with Matthew Beggs on the weekly show last week, had two beers in the Gab's Hottest 100, uh, which is not for nothing. So thank you again to everybody from the Final Word community who got involved in that. Uh, thank you to everybody who has followed Brick Lane on socials and backed in what they've been trying to do and bought their beer from the local bottle shop or told their friends about it. That really came through loud and clear uh, around the country this year. Anyone we met up with who said that they've been supporting Brick Lane because Brick Lane support what we do and it's a, it's a nice thing we've got going on there. So uh, Christopher, you are part of the Brick Lane family as well. I should also mention, Adam, that Brick Lane stumped up for the uh, the final word game. They dropped off a, a very generous supply of, um, <laughs> of beverages, uh, which were shared around between the teams and, and greatly appreciated. So that's those are the kind of, that's the kind of people they are. Fantastic, BrickLaneBrewing.com. Uh, support them in any way you can. And we're going to have an offer code by the time that um, we we lay the uh, weekly show down. We will know what our offer code is for February. Uh, and we'll be able to relay that to you uh, when you next tune into the final word, which will get you somewhere in the order of about 15% off your next Brick Lane purchase. All right, that's the end of the new numbers. Uh, we've got a little bit of correspondence, some uh, bannermen to look at after the break, and, uh, and then it'll be game over. This is Jeremy Coney, and I'm on the final word. Brick Lane make great beer, Woodstock make great cricket bats. We only align ourselves, Jeff, with people who are doing, who are doing the, the, the best work in their field. And uh, in the case of Woodstock, uh, not only are they the best bats, they're eminently affordable compared to their competition who, you know, you, you want to go and buy yourself a bat from one of the big well-known brands that you might have grown up with over the years. All you're doing is going to a retail shop, seeing it, taking it off, and going to the counter and paying the money. It could not be more different to that with Woodstock where you get the 
the personal experience of going up there and learning about your piece of kit or on Zoom with them as well. If you're not able to physically be with them, if you're in Australia, for example, you can you can work with Jono and the team up there to make sure you get the right bat. And not, not just bats either, I should say, all of their all of their pads and gloves and, and all the rest, Jeff. And people have been getting into that too. Joe Vosnitschka-Wells has a message through to let us know that he scored a sweet pair of gloves with the 20% discount. Anyone who listens to the final word can get 20% off all of the stuff. Bats, gloves, pads, all, all the gear. TFW20 is the code. You put it in at the checkout. Simple as can be. Uh, and you can get yourself a, a nice discount off some top quality kit. We're heading into the new season. Everyone is enjoying their winter nets in the UK at the moment. Take full advantage of the offer code TFW20 woodstockcricket.co.uk. The best bats in the world. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's the final word story time. Uh, a couple of things to wrap up the show. Uh, we like to keep an eye on Bannermans, as you know, the, uh, the the highest percentage of runs in a completed innings, or the Bakewell, as it should be for women's cricket. Heather Knight looked like um, she was on track for a while there. She made 56%, 56 and a bit percent of the runs in England's first innings in the Test match with her unbeaten 168 a crazy scorecard next best score 34 next best score 15 absolutely remarkable I, I i will say that it's probably because of the interview she did with the final word just before the <laughs> test match got her in the headspace got her ready to go jeremy burke has, has written in about Banamania. he says trawling through files in my computer folder marked cricket <laughs> i found a document put out by the uh, association of cricket statisticians and historians of unusual scorecards and up pops a doozy of a double bannerman in a match between chalcots and bow around 1859 no other details given chalcots opener h Payne carried his bat for 24 out of 27 all out with three extras uh, that's 88.89 percent not good enough, though. In the second dig, Chelcott's all-out 11, and Paney got the other 10 carrying his bat with a 90.90%. Oh. Hope the others didn't insist he share the spoils of the match award. Bloody hell. So he, all the runs in the game have been scored by one fella for this team with four extras the rest. I mean, I was going to make a big deal about Heather Knight's innings and saying that there were 19 extras, which was the third highest score, which meant that she got 60.4% of the runs scored off the bat were Knights. And I was, you know, sort of, again, bending the rules a bit for my own interest to get her into the 60s, but no need for it there. I mean, he's a 100-100 he's a on, the, on, the, uh, on, on the way I was uh, interpreting the Knight score the other night. <laughs> um, yes, as, as, as you say, the rest of the team uh, didn't do a whole lot. And we got another one that came in uh, from Tim, who is ump21 on Twitter, presumably an umpire. Yeah, this is a belter from the weekend. So Paul Amy, who I, who I enjoyed watching some cricket with uh, there at the Albert Ground when I was back in Australia, uh, he is a wonderful journal, I should say, uh, and writer on not only cricket, but sport all around metropolitan Melbourne mostly. So this was a game uh, between Newborough, and Merbu North in the B grade of the Latrobe Cricket Association on the weekend. So they were chasing 67 and uh, Newborough were 
all out for 24. And B. Aitken, that's all we've got here, scored 19 of that 24. There were two extras. There were eight ducks. There was a two and there was a one not out and that's it. So B. Aitken with 19 out of 24 gets himself a 79 percenter. And uh, for the opposition, Merbu North, the bloke by the name of R. Hughes, presumably not the, the R. Hughes from Hey Dad who's in prison, I'm pretty sure at the moment, took six for seven. Uh, so uh, quite the scorecard there. And uh, thank you, Tim, for bringing it to our attention and for Paul Amy for all of your great work. So, yes, uh, Bannerman stuff everywhere. And while I've got the floor, one more Bannerman adjacent here from Mark Dwyer. I think it was also a Paul Amy tweet that started this. But Mark Dwyer, who last year, Jeff played against us in that uh, in that game. In fact, I think he might have been, I think he might have been the guy I caught off Dermy's bowling. Um, he was yes, certainly in towards the end. Uh, and Mark raised with us the career of Simon Hill a couple of months ago, who did get a bannerman for Camberwell Magpies. Well, another star of the, the Camberwell Magpies team uh, is a, a chap by the name of Chris Thulis, uh, who uh, a couple of weekends ago struck 237 in 72 balls in the twos. The great cricketer put up a brilliant video uh, when a catch went down off him on about 150-odd and the bowler just berating uh, his fielder. But, yeah, it only got worse from there. So a strike rate of 329, 24 sixes, and uh, he was making those runs against Kingston Hawthorne, who were the opposition in the seconds. Uh, They only lost one wicket, so it was no Bannerman, but the other two players in that innings made 31 and 29 not out, respectively. We got a bit more info, Mark, about Chris and mate of his. He said that he earlier in the year in a, in a pre-season game, he, he made 90 or 46, but then did a hamstring, which is why he's coming back through the second. So normally a ones player, but yeah, took advantage going a level down and, and, and belting 237 off 72 balls. So we got a, a bit more correspondence in from Nick in 80, who's in Singapore. Uh, he said he was listening to the show and was here to offer an explanation as to why I thought that Andrew Simons hit seven off one ball and you were sure that he'd hit eight off one ball. So Nick says the Crick Info commentary, which is where I was looking, I recorded this as a seven because their software is not programmed to record an eight. The next ball was a dot ball, but was recorded as a single to ensure the score was correct. And he was dismissed the following delivery. So on paper and three consecutive balls, there's a seven, which was actually an eight, <laughs> a one, which was actually a dot and a wicket. And Simon's faced all three. <laughs> Thank you, Nick, for setting that through. Uh, the plot thickens. I mean, th- th- this is very useful because we were quite confounded. I was like, I'm, I'm sure I was looking at that and it said it was a seven and you were equally convinced it was an eight. Yeah. Yeah, well, this explains it. The most controversial moment on the Crick Info commentary since the brown-nosed gnome Farago of 2003. Um, <laughs> uh, speaking of which, we'll have more to say about Justin Langer tomorrow uh, on the weekly show. Another piece of correspondence here from Tim Farone. Now, this is quite nice. I thought we'd end the show with this. Uh, I'll just read directly from what he sent to me. Uh, I wanted to relay a story that all is not lost to private school dominance. So Tim's writing after our episode with Rory Dollard a few weeks ago. My son, aged 10, is a cricket nut, solidified particularly off the back of the 2019 World Cup win. He attends our local state school where football dominates as much as everywhere through the UK, yet he has fallen for cricket. He rose without fail at 4am to watch the series in India. He studies stats like the truest nerd, follows England but also cricket wherever it is played and speaks glowingly as much of bar 
Barbara's arm or Nathan Lyon as he does Joe Root. He's only a season in with our small, local, unfashionable club, yet made the Surrey Age Group Academy, which we didn't know existed until we were asked if he wanted to be put forward. He's likely to be one of the few non-private school kids to attend the Surrey Winter Program, but he is there and he's an off-spinner too, which says even more about his inner determination. Who knows where this leads, as it's sufficient to witness his love and absorption in the game, but please know there are connections being made, whether because of or in spite of the system. In a dark and bleak English cricketing winter, there are some glimmers of hope. There are there are glimmers of hope uh, wherever we want to look, Tim Ferrone. And thank you for sending that through to us. Thank you to all of the nerd pledges who have sent through their numbers. And thank you to everyone else who supports the show as well. That has been the final word. Story time. We're back, baby. Uh, and there will be plenty more final word to come. Thanks to Brick Lane Brewing who support the show a week in, week out. Thanks to Woodstock Cricket. Uh, you can get that discount. That's all in the show notes, all of the information that you might need. Uh, the final word is on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. Lots of other shows on there as well. Thanks to Dave Collins who edits it week in and week out. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening in and making the show what it is. This has been Storytime. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. We'll see you next time. So you know what I meant I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.